0: This is Religion and Theology, a podcast from the Center for Theology and Religious Studies. In this episode, Sibylle Fritsch Oppermann will speak on the topic of multi religious identities as expressed in arts in the East and the West. And I once more hand over the word to Professor Mika Vehekangas to give a word of introduction. Our next paper will be by Sibylle Fritsch Oppermann, and uh, she will be uh, continuing with this topic of arts. So uh, uh, Dr Fritsch Opperman, Sibylle you are very welcome. Um, thank you so much um, for um, having me, although I cannot share this wonderful event with you in person. Just a few words. Um, I am also a member of the European Network uh, for Buddhist Christian Studies. Uh, and this is where I mainly met Oswald Lander. The first time we met, in the, we had a, a, a chat in the evening. And we were, it, it's quite a while ago, and already then, um, we were talking about uh, Shusaku Endo's uh, novel, Silence, Shinmoko, um which was mentioned yesterday and today as well. And I had the pleasure to spend uh, two years in Japan. And um, also had the chance to visit um, the hit, so-called hidden Christians on this uh, Ikitsuki Island, um, where this uh, this novel uh, plays, um, and um, and so there is um, yeah there is a lot of silence in Shusaku Endo's aesthetics and um, and in this novel and. Um, I'm really happy to, to be part of this conference in memory of Ossouf, I'm, I'm really happy. And I'm really happy um, about Ossouf and, and all what he knew and did and taught. To add to this title, Beauty, Way and Traces Towards Truth. Let me start with a short introduction. Some representatives of what is called comparative theology since a couple of years stressed their own Christian theological standpoint as a starting point when differentiating their method from pluralist theology which they fear tends to become syncretistic or to end up in a mere humanism and secularity. Comparative theology is neither to be understood in the sense of neutral religious studies but presumes a religious, maybe a theological standpoint of its own instead. From this standpoint, various different perspectives of other religions should be taken in the process of dialogue. In doing so, one's own standpoint should be further developed. Klaus von Stosch, a representative of this theology, formulates, Es geht der komparativen Theologie nicht um Allgemeinaussagen über die Wahrheit einer oder mehrerer Religionen, sondern um das Hin- und Hergehen zwischen konkreten religiösen Traditionen angesichts bestimmter Problemfelder, um Verbindendes und Trennendes zwischen den Religionen neu zu entdecken. Comparative theology does not watch out for general statements about the truth of one or several religions, but tries to go to and fro between concrete religious traditions, facing certain fields of problems, in order to find anew what connects and what separates religions. In comparative theology, one issue mainly is at stake. How could the truth claim truth claims of one's own belief, faith, system, be combined with a respectful and positive appreciation of other religions. And it is felt a basic dilemma, as von Stosch has called it, that so far no model in theology of religions can give a convincing answer to this twofold wish. However, and to my point of view, this still seems to be rather close to models of inclusivism and in the end has as its goal to enrich and enlighten one's own confessional or religious horizon. Since, even if this perspective helps to put off final truth claims or even absolutisms, it still describes to a certain extent a methodological, and ontological meta-perspective. The inclusivism inherent in such a meta-perspective is seldom discussed any further. Do we speak here about truth in becoming? Is it a plural truth? Are there many truths? And what does it mean for our own religious confession and systematic theological conclusion? To a certain extent, also pluralist theology argues from a personal and confessional background, sometimes from the standpoint of dual or even plural religious identities and belongings, as does, for example, and besides many others, Paul Nitter. Some representatives of pluralist theology, on the other hand, take stand from a many humanistic and metaphysical meta-perspective. To my point of view also, theological pluralism is not free from absolutist claims, from meta-level judgments and the aporias following. I personally, and for theological as well as hermeneutical and methodological reasons, prefer to start finding analogies between different cultural, religious and philosophical systems and ways of argumentation by the help of art. But even then, each comparing intention brings with it the danger of taking a standing point of observation beyond its own cultural and subjective background, which in the least needs to be explained and methodologically reflected. The worst result of not doing so being a new absolutism, Eurocentrism, or hidden mythological intention in some outcomes of what, for example, is called intercultural theology <coughs> To a certain extent, I'm following, I am following here Hamid Reza Yousefi's intercultural philosophy and its concept of reason, arguing that each rational approach is bound to context, situations, and individuality. And I use the term responsible interim or responsible provisionality in German verantwortete Vorläufigkeit in hermeneutics and ethics. And I do this in analogy with Popper's principle of falsification in the natural sciences and under the presupposition that this provisionality has its roots already in Kant's critical idealism. As far as the disciplines of science and religion, religious studies, and intercultural philosophy are concerned, I therefore prefer a more phenomenological and constructivist method, not the least in order to differentiate them clearly from systematic theology and pluralist theology as well as intercultural or comparative theology and their confessional bindings. Beauty Again, as a first approach, I make do with mere analogy. And analogy, it seems to me, exists between quite a few religious and cultural concepts of truth, beauty and good, of reality and world, and in order to communicate the plurality of these concepts, my argument is that it is rather helpful to use aesthetics as a distance bridge concept when dealing with them. Beauty, and with it, the beauty and aesthetics of diversity could become one of the main tools, if not even a third space, in order to establish interreligious and intercultural encounter and also to understand and communicate better dual and multiple belonging and identity. And since the concept of beauty and with it aesthetics can be found in almost each and every effort to describe and to to narrate the wonder that there is something in this world and not nothing. In philosophy leading towards metaphysics, critical idealism and existentialism, just to name a few of the most important Western schools, in Zen Buddhism towards the concept of emptiness, and in Christian mysticism towards what I would call an enlightened unity of God and human beings. It is taken here exemplarily as a tool in constructing and understanding intercultural and interreligious existence and philosophy. And with it, it is a standpoint of non-dualism and non-monism in general. Only art, better the dialectics of aesthetic production and reception is, what to my point of view, and if at all, can be taken as representation and an ongoing metaphor for the forms of things as they are in the absolute. Art lifts the infinite division in aesthetic production. Absolute nothingness. At this point, let us have a closer look at what is called absolute nothingness in the Buddhist tradition of Japanese Kyoto school. We heard about this uh, in uh, Rakel Buzu's lecture already. Contrary to the Occidental thought tradition of the absolute as absolute being in substance ontology and metaphysics, in Kyoto school final reality is taken as absolute nothingness, Zetai Mu in Japanese language. Thoughts formulated by Nishida Kitaro, Kanabe Hajime, Nishitani Keiji, and other representatives of Kyoto school finally led to a religious philosophical approach within Christian Buddhist dialogue which used the Buddhist topoi of emptiness or non-substantiality of all beings and of no-self on one hand and on the other hand Christian mysticism as that of Meister Eckhart for example and the traditions of negative theology. My suggestion at this point being to go even a step further and concentrate more than on transcendental philosophy, even though in its tradition, on what I would call deconstructivist intercultural and interreligious philosophy and hermeneutics of religion. It is indeed a third and non-dualist way between monism and dualism having its roots in mysticism, poetry and paradoxical language as well as in Buddhist philosophy of emptiness. Deconstructivism here taken in the sense of a method to get closer to truth and final reality in following ways and traces of its beauty and embodiment and at best find a truth in the making, insinuated through art multi-religious identities and their manifestations in Eastern and Western art. Let me now give an example of how art can offer what I call a third way, a space to meet or maybe just a bridge to cross as far as possible in order to reach a meeting space and be it the bridge itself when it comes to express what could be meant by terms such as multi-religious identities or dual and multiple belonging. The notion of fragility to my point of view fits very well whenever a believer enters an encounter with what is other, be that another denomination, another faith, another discipline, etc. Even more so when this encounter takes place within a human person, not the least because of dual or multiple belonging. On the other hand, and in the end, it does make a stronger person. To open up to otherness, also means to take serious the first article of the Christian creed and to be existentially and faithfully open to other creatures and to human beings of other faiths, worldviews and convictions. This might lead to existential and psychological pain indeed, also to contestations of faith, but it is nevertheless the faithful duty of a Christian who takes serious that God has created each and every thing in this universe. To say it in other words, Article 1 of the Christian Creed permanently and seriously questions all absolutist claims and all Christian metaphysics. If we stick to the traces of God in reality, however, we might start with an intercultural theology or philosophy of the cross. And this in a certain analogy to what I have called deconstructivist, intercultural and interreligious philosophy and hermeneutics of religion. We deal here with fragile existences with religious identities under construction as we just learned in Ruckabuso's lecture. In terms of hermeneutics, we have to differentiate language levels of faith, of reason, and discursive and non-discursive language of narratives, of art, etc. The first Christian confessions or creeds and doxologies written down, the early Trinitarian formulations were poetic language, were paradoxical speech, language transcending itself and at the same time putting itself in its place. Jesus' parables are typical for such poetical and paradoxical language when pointing out to the breathtaking paradox of the reign of God, the breathtaking paradox of heavens on earth. Metaphors and symbols are auxiliary constructions of language describing the indescribable, indescribable and inexpressible break in of a different reality into human history. In doing so, they are in pictures painting reality, but trying to paint traces of what reality beyond reality could be, what truth could be beyond that what can be seen. Where two constructions of reality, two truths of faith meet each other, the final and maybe even undividable reality of divine and human love, lying at the bottom of both, nevertheless not destroying or denying their uniqueness or singularity, can only be represented by the help of metaphor and symbol, the Greek word "symballein" actually meaning to throw together. And this is so because in this truth we have to deal with the paradox of a dividable and communicable truth and all oneness and aloneness dividing itself into unique singularities. And to use metaphorical and symbolical forms of communication is leading to a closer and better look at forms of nonverbal communication as well. With metaphors and symbols of music, dance, theater, painting and sculptures, to just name a few. If truth, if final reality manifests itself in communicable singularities, those singularities, when trying to meet aloneness, or oneness, sometimes follow a way, a trace, I would call self-construction through deconstruction, and what might be close to what Rousseau calls performing selves through art. The latter I read as a metaphor in a twofold sense, performing other selves through art in order to better understand, and empathically that as close as possible to the foreign, but also performing and shaping oneself through art, maybe even realize oneself as a singularity in which truth communicates itself through art. In theater, more specific in Aristotelian tragedy, this, and besides others, might come close to what is known as the cathartic effect of it. And I see this also close to what I would call life itself as a piece of art and sacraments in general and the Eucharistic in specific as a playful practice into God's reign. Multi-religious identities, art in the East, the paintings of
1: Uttarananda.
0: When it comes to the importance of non-verbal communication in multi-religious encounter, painting plays a very special role, since its pictures and metaphors are of a kind of its own in adding to the symbols of language. Painting possesses an elementality which language does not have because it follows a multi-dimensional logic. Its single statements do not follow an unambiguous linear causality, but instead, and more or less on the surface, do interpret each other synchronically. And this enables a summary of intercultural and interreligious aspects without a logical necessity of syncretistic conclusions. In Latin American and African religious painting, Maria, for example, is often painted as a black woman, as farm woman, and mother of many children. Jesus keeps his oriental look. Those around him are simple peasants and fishermen. In other paintings, he is wearing a poncho, like Latin American indigenous do. As if self-evident, the solidarity of God with those is painted who are at the margins of society. Women, poor, marginalized because of the color of their skin. As if self-evident, Jesus gets domiciled in the culture of those who hope for his expulsion and support. In other paintings, Buddhist and Christian elements do complement each other. Jesus in the arms of the eleven-headed and mighty-armed goddess Kanon. Maria is one of the ancestors of gods, which can be seen in African paintings on home altars or paintings of Christmas and Easter motifs. Jesus is shown as Bodhisattva. Buddha as one of the prophets. Different religions of one country find their place on one and the same canvas, they build a common reality and are nevertheless non-interchangeable. And I may add here that therefore painting could be a wonderful method for explaining to oneself and others what dual or multiple belonging means. One brilliant example are the paintings and sculptures of Uttarananda, As a Buddhist monk and priest in Sri Lanka, he founded, together with some monks and also friends from student times, a group dealing with social problems and ethical uprisings and fights in this country. Three components are already important in this early times. Religion, political engagement, and art as an intermediator between those two worlds and between different religions. He built on his own style in later studying painting and sculpture work in Florence and then in Milano. One of his major interests being a mediation between Christian and Buddhist ideas of humanitarianism and a solidary and ecologically concerned world community. Religious metaphors and quotations from iconography help interpreting his paintings are signs of warning and hope. Also, interreligious questions and questions of dual and multiple belonging are taken up. And the parallelism of several quotations from different religions is obvious. For the spectator, different conclusions are possible, not binding him and her to only one. It is important to see Uttarananda as a Buddhist priest and not as a Christian in a Buddhist context. When interpreting his paintings, It is more a question of encounter of two different religious contexts and faith systems, maybe of dual belonging, and not so much the question of contextual Christianity. All the more is it remarkable how great the interferences of his quotations from both religions are. There is a painting of Jesus' birth in a stable, and I really have to... um, um, ask you to uh, forgive me for a, a really terrible black and white reproduction. This is the only one I could find here in my home office. Uh, at the moment I cannot go to to my um, office uh, since we had um, a few uh, COVID cases in that building. Um, and um, I gave you another one just to um, show you, uh, or to give you, a sense of how he uses colors, uh, but this is actually the painting I'm uh, referring to shortly. Uh, the painting of Jesus' birth in a stable. Mary is holding Jesus. We see Joseph, ox and donkey. In the more forefront, we also see two white deer who have, as the legend tells, attended the birth of Buddha. Mary and Joseph are quasi-painting the sign of Yin and Yang with their lips. A second look shows a sign of the cross painted at the door with light and shadow. A snake can be seen in the cross as well. Fall and salvation have to be taken as closely related. The circle of arising and elapsing is also to be associated here. Who then is the child in the cradle? Jesus? Gautama? Is this a Buddhist homage to Jesus, seen as a human brother, or as God's son? Or is it a metaphor for dual belonging, for one truth in all singularities? Besides, this is one of many examples how Uttarananda paints what is universally unifying, and especially so between Buddhism and Christianity. A humanism transcending borders in a divine human love transcending confession, faith, and culture. And because he is painting this universal love and not a theory, an analytical survey about universalism he is able, not hindered on the surface of canvas by any hierarchy in space or time, to paint the costly richness of different ways towards the common humanum and nevertheless fit it into a universal frame in the manner of art as a suggestion set into disposition, ready for whatsoever encounter with foreign and other ideas and emotions, narrative and stories. Let us try then to differentiate between the language of reason and the poetry of the heart. Reinhold Bernhard, for example, shows how inter-religious understanding, togetherness and encounter become easier by the help of parables and metaphors from different religious and cultural backgrounds. Togetherness of religions and creeds is not a syncretism, they are not exchangeable, their togetherness may not even transcend borders or overlap, but has to be taken in the sense of a commonality, a neighborhood, a similarity of families, consisting in the poetry of the heart, in grasping God, a final divine reality, in grasping what ultimately concerns us. If this is how we see the interconnectedness of religions, also convivencia between their followers becomes possible and sensible. Civil religion, civil religiosity, art in the West, das Evangelium der alle English, the Gospel of the eels. Wer einmal einen Aal sterben und dann wieder Leben sehen hat, dem reicht das rationale Denken nicht mehr aus. Man kann fast alles erklären. Man kann über die verschiedenen Prozesse der Sauerstoffversetzung und des Stoffwechsels diskutieren oder über die schützenden Sekrete des Aals und seine besonders angepassten Kiemen. Aber ich habe es mit eigenen Augen gesehen. Ich bin Zeuge. Ein Aal kann sterben. Und dann wieder leben. Coming now to an example from recent European, actually Swedish literature, I very briefly give an example of how topics of religion and spirituality are taken up and in doing so disposed to the mostly secular public for further consideration, understanding and dialogue and encounter. Let me try my own English translation of the quotation above although there is an English version of this beautiful book. Who once saw an eel dying and then living again is no longer satisfied alone by rational thinking. We can explain almost everything. We can discuss those different processes of oxygen displacement and of metabolism or those protecting secretions of it and its especially adapted gills. But I have seen it with my very eyes. I am testifying it, an eel can die and then live anew. Dirk in referring to this book, states that the exact observation of nature forces the journalist to take serious and discuss his coinages and non-beliefs. His companion, the ear, sharpens his own reading, and such he is reading a new sentences written in the Bible, or is dealing with his grandmother's faith and with how he has referred to it and still is referring to it. His grandmother believed into the strength of divining rods and of the Bible stories. When he describes himself, he would do it as non-believing, agnostic but the eel again and again provokes his doubts. This is an amazing complementarity to what we find in Mark 9:24. Ich glaube, Herr hilf meinem Unglauben. I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. In fact, what is described above could end up in the exclamation, Ich glaube nicht, provoziere meinen Zweifel. I do not believe, help my doubts. This shows that in the medium of literature and its metaphors and symbols, a possibility opens up so far not very well known to theology and hermeneutics and not even to religious and cultural studies, to take art, in this case literature as a third space, a neutral meeting point for secular and religious longings for sense, which always also is for love, hope and maybe faith. There is not the slightest trace and connotation of mission in it, at least there should not be. If one would take this too often misused term at all, it would be in an aesthetical way, in the sense of broadening our ability to find and be inspired by beauty. It may well be, that for a Christian believer, this aesthetics corresponds to the notion of creation. It may well be, that for a Buddhist, it gets close to what he or she would call open with. But it not necessarily has to. For sure, any duty works beyond words as well, and maybe even more so. Outlook? In times of frightening and dangerous pandemics and wars, at the edge of a better future and a more just world, or an even worse split and hiatus between rich and poor, black and white, etc. let me end this paper saying, praying, painting, singing, playing, our hands are not bound. And in times of crisis, we also can take the letter as a chance and experience the healing and saving potentials of faith and of art may be especially intense. And the question, what could be an appropriate culture, poses itself in a very new way. And a little anxious and very concerned We on the other hand perhaps finally have the long breath helping us to answer these questions more competent and innovative, as that has been the case so far. In any case, I am sure that what we just now experience needs and fills with sense, our solidarity and humanity beyond all borders of religion, culture, upbringing and profession. Maybe art discovers the holy and new and in a new sense. Maybe religion finally discovers the beautiful, binding together all beings, human, living and even non-living. Maybe dual and multiple belongings open up new paths towards a common future. This should be the end of all too big words. This world also needs silence. Thank you for your patience.